ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are studying the spiritual gifts and the church, and we're going to take a look at the different spiritual gifts, and we're going to take a look at basic uh, church philosophy of ministry, and then uh, delve into how these things should mesh together. Um, we saw the last time we met, two weeks ago, uh, our approach is to identify the spiritual gifts and their functions, then identify the functions of the church and look at and see how they are to interact with each other. We, uh, in identifying the spiritual gifts, First uh, Peter chapter 4 was kind of our hinge verse um, that we, as each has received a grace gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we see that Peter breaks down basically two types of gifts, those that involve speaking and those that involve serving. So we can kind of look at the, the different gifts and see that they're going to fit into those two areas. Uh, Concerning the speaking gifts, we're called to communicate the oracles of God. So that means that we have to know them uh, as a communicator of any kind, whether a teacher, pastor, teacher, an encourager can be a communicator. We're all called to be teachers. So when we communicate, we're supposed to know God's Word and teach it. And that requires study to show yourself approved unto God. Second Timothy 2.15, a verse we're real familiar with, learning God's Word and being able to uh, express it and communicate it to other people. The service gifts, we are to rely on the strength that God supplies, and that comes from Peter's writing there in 1 Peter chapter 4. So we have the communication gifts that has a standard, God's Word. We have the service gifts that are supposed to rely on the strength that God supplies to do that. We have uh, gone through this, and you can see this handout jumps from uh, A to uh, roughly, what, H, G, and then goes to point eight because that's where we left off last time. So that's why it's so weird there. It's an intentional mistake. So uh, you don't need to send me cards and letters on that one. Uh, spiritual gifts were given to the church, which began on the day of Pentecost. Uh, so that tells us spiritual gifts are not really a function of the age of Israel. It's another one of those little subtle indications of a dispensational change. Because you don't have spiritual gifts in the age of Israel, but you do have spiritual gifts referred to that come in conjunction with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a church age issue. So you have the, the spiritual gifting being given to priests of God, a royal priesthood, a universal priesthood. So you have... Um, uh, actually kind of specialized gifts that were designed to lay the foundation. Uh, Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets so the church could begin, be built up, and be stabilized so things could be done decently and in order. These gifts were called sign gifts. They were designed to evangelize the unbeliever and to stabilize the new believer till Scripture for the new dispensation could be written. So you ask, why were they there? Why were they different? Why did they not exist prior to the day of Pentecost? Why did they exist after the day of Pentecost? And part of it was so that these... Twelve apostles, eleven of them that he sent out with a great commission and he added Paul back in later. So these guys could go in 
to all the world and take the gospel to a lot of different places and not spend three years at a language school trying to learn the language and the dialects and everything else. They would not have gotten anywhere in India because the 26 major languages that are there, 200 major dialects, that are connected in with those 26 different languages and three years apiece, a normal time to learn a language is 600 years. They weren't living that long then, so God said, all right, I'll take care of this. And when Thomas went into India and landed on the west coast and he walked all the way across to the east coast where he was martyred at the hands of a Hindu priest, he traversed probably 12, 14, 20 languages getting across that small part of southern India. So this gift of languages, not tongues, that's misleading, but in, interestingly enough in other languages, if you say language or tongue, it's translated by the same word. Okay, It's not two different words like we have different words here. Whenever that word is translated, then they know it means language, but it's been confused by some people that came over and evangelized them. But what happens is by men of strange lips, these things happen. So these guys come in and they speak, but they have a different dialect. Just like on the day of Pentecost, these guys are from Galilee. They can pick it up and they're, what are they doing speaking our language? Okay? There are things that are different here. So these gifts were given as of the day of Pentecost. The temporary gifts are called sign gifts designed to evangelize the unbeliever and also to stabilize the new believer. Because if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and you, you read what's going on in the church in Corinth, first of all, there was one church in Corinth. There wasn't a church on every street corner. So people that were Christians that would come into Corinth that would find the church may not have spoken the native language there. They may have come from afar. And so anybody that came into that church, they were able to minister to them because they could speak their language when they walked into the church. They could communicate to them. The gift of interpretation was one of those gifts that if somebody walks into Corinth and say they're a Greek-speaking church and somebody comes from India and they speak Tamil, but nobody in Corinth spoke Tamil, but the gift of tongues could then speak Tamil. Okay, So if they're speaking Tamil to a Tamil speaker as they come in, then they need an interpreter that can interpret it back into Greek for, this, for the rest of the congregation. That's the way the languages were designed to work in the early church. So when visitors came, they would be able to be edified. 1 Corinthians 14, do all things for edification, for building up. Paul wrote, why do I speak? He said, I'd rather speak five words that you can understand than 10,000 words in a language nobody could understand. And that's, why, that's what he was trying to say. You come in there and you're showing off of this gift because it was a gift and it could be used carnally. The gift of tongues, the gift of healing, miracles, those other things, legitimate gifts when they were functional could be used in a carnal way. So the... Corinthians were using it to show off. And he said, you just act like a bunch of madmen. What happens if an, the ungifted or an unbeliever enters, chapter 14, and all of you are speaking different languages? Will he not say that you're insane? And the answer is, yes, he will. Okay, so don't act like a bunch of crazy people. 
in front of somebody you're trying to evangelize. That was his point of 1 Corinthians 14. So these gifts were there in the early church before the canon was completed so that people could be evangelized and so that believers could be edified. Someone came into the church and they didn't know the native language and yet they wanted to be a part of that fellowship. Somebody could take the information and I'm standing up here teaching and I got a Tamil translator over here never learned Tamil but we got somebody that came in for, that speaks Tamil over there so I'm speaking he's translating and the Tamil guy back there understands what's going on. So that's the way the gifts were originally designed to work. Now as the church grew and it expanded and Acts makes very careful uh, points of saying and the church grew and the church grew. You can build an outline off the book of Acts and you build it off the, the little statements that say and the church grew and expanded. And the church grew and expanded. Because it would talk about the church as it was, the church under persecution, and the church growing and, and expanding. That's what it would do. Then it got to where there were churches in all of these areas that people could attach to. Because if a person that spoke Tamil came in and got evangelized and he went back, he could start a Tamil church in a Tamil-speaking area and they didn't need an interpreter. Solo, India is probably a bad place there. Solo is an Indian. Solo speaks Malayalam. He speaks Tamil. He understands Hindi and some Canada. And when he goes to various places to teach, he still has to have a translator when he goes to teach foundations. Uh, when you go to Sri Lanka, you get two translators. You're going to have some fun. You say this sentence here, and then the Tamil translator translates it, and the Sinhalese translator translates it. So that's, that's what happens. It's a slow process in Sri Lanka. But this gift said that you don't have to learn all these languages academically. You don't have to learn the Malayalam alphabet and all the figures of speech and the grammar and all that. The gift, it was a gift that said you can do it right now to fill the need of the moment. It, see, they were practical. And they were designed to be edifying. They always were called a function out of love. Every gift of any kind, temporary or permanent, has to function in the sphere of love or it's useless. It's just drawing attention to self. Now, after the canon was completed, um, they weren't needed anymore. Because now we had a written canon that had been circulated. It had been copied. And so, therefore, they would have words that came from the apostles. They would have words that came from the writer of Hebrews. They would have the gift of prophecy functioning. And when they received it, they would go, this is Scripture. We need to keep it. We need to copy it by hand, which is what they did. Xerox were all broken then because they didn't have any power. So they had, had to copy it by hand and keep it for themselves. Then they'd pass it on to another church. And that other church would take it and copy it by hand. And this other church, when they got a writing of Paul, like after First Thessalonians left Thessalonica, and it went over to Ephesus, and they looked at it, and their prophets went, yeah, this is Scripture. So see, these things were all immediately accepted as Scripture before they were ever voted on by a council in 300 A.D., 
Now, part of the attack on Scripture today is to say that that it's just all the works of man. There's 66 books. They're all written by man. And man's the one that put them all together. Man's the one that put the stamp of approval on us. One part of the Muslim attacks on Christianity, by the way, is that our book is just a book written by men and put together by men. We need to be aware of some of these things. But when these books were received, those of the gift of prophecy knew they were Scripture. And those with the gift of discerning of spirits which checked the prophets knew they were Scripture. The early church fathers quoted them as Scripture. And all the councils ever did was say, we recognize these books already to have authority. They did not confer authority upon them. Okay? A big difference. Spiritual gifts served a very practical, meaningful, important purpose, even the temporary gifts in the early part of the church. Now, other gifts were designated after the church passed the infancy stage. So we have 20 gifts given by name. We find them in four passages of Scripture. And you, you have them there in uh, either this handout or the last one. Then 10 of them, half of them were temporary. The other half of them were uh, permanent that we still have. Now... We're told the gifts of prophecy and languages and the word of knowledge will be done away when the perfect comes. That's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. But since the, those gifts will be done away, then there are counterpart gifts. So if you do away with prophecy, languages, and word of knowledge, because there are counterpart gifts to those, those counterpart gifts will be gone too. Prophecy as discerning of spirits distinguishing of spirits. In fact, there's actually a grammatical uh, statement that makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that these two go together. They're, they're inseparable gifts. So you've got prophecy, discerning of spirits. You have uh, languages, interpretation of languages. And you have the word of knowledge, and I believe that's connected with uh, faith. Now, <clears throat> these are communication gifts. Okay, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. They're gifts that involve the uh, teaching, understanding, and communication of the Word of God. Now, when the book of Revelation was written, prophecy was closed for the church age. Why did you have a gift of prophecy if prophecy is closed? It, it wouldn't make any sense, would it? And yet, today, people walk around calling themselves prophets. One of the, the neatest things we that happen in going to some of the other countries and teaching foundations. And boy, when you start teaching temporary gifts and permanent gifts uh, in a Pentecostal environment, you can get in a lot of trouble really fast. And uh, we had uh, a couple of guys show up in Ghana back about three years ago. It was a year before you came. I told you, you met him, uh, John, about this this tall and uh, the first time I met him he was the prophet John and that's the way he introduced himself and he had the robes and he had everything else that went along with it the next year when David was there with me he was dressed in regular clothes and he wasn't the prophet John anymore he was brother John and he said the reason was he realized the gift of prophecy was gone <laughs> and part of that was the fact that he had to be accurate 100% of the time. 
Okay, that, that'll that rattle a lot of them off <laughs> when you show them Deuteronomy 13 and 18 and say, uh, what's the test of a prophet? 100% accuracy. They miss one of these things? They're not a prophet. They're a false prophet, and that's a penalty worthy of death. And you can silence a few of them <laughs> in the process. But that was so gratifying to see as this man said, you know, I, I might be able to have some wisdom or something, but he said basically that, that understanding changed his life in a good way. And he is a student of the Word. He is one of those that have, is going through and continuing to uh, further his education. But the last chapter, a revelation, the last few verses, John makes it very clear that prophecy shut down for the church age. This is it. Okay, the book of Revelation closes it out. Uh, the perfect, therefore, must be the completed, God-breathed, inspired Word of God. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. We see that John gave us the clue in Revelation chapter 22. Uh, some people say the perfect is Jesus Christ. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. That's part of the argument today as to why it is still around. As Jesus hasn't come back, that the gift, these temporary gifts are going to be around until Jesus comes back at the rapture. But the word perfect, interestingly enough, and used in 1 Corinthians 13, is used in the neuter. It is not used in the masculine. If it was, Jesus is not referred to in the neuter. He's referred to in the masculine. So when you have a neuter pop up in a situation like that, you have to see what concept is involved rather than what person is involved. So it's just a grammatical point that they miss, and it means a lot. When the perfect comes, neuter, what is it? The only other place that's used in the neuter is James 1, along about verse 22, where it's talking about the Word of God. And it implies the completed Word of God is done. That's the perfect. Okay, And these things are done away by that time. Now, <clears throat> Revelation 21.14, this is where we left off. Uh, I know it's been a little bit of review, but I was gone for a week, and it always seems like a month. So... Uh, when I'm gone. Revelation 21.14 indicates there were only 12 apostles. Uh, if you want to look there, take a, take a look. I'm one of these people that believes the Holy Spirit knew what He was doing when He put definite articles in and when He left them out. That I believe inspiration of Scripture goes down to every single letter and every single word. 21.14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I think there was 12 apostles. Now, that poses some issues because Matthias got elected as an apostle, Acts chapter 1. Barnabas got called an apostle. Uh, Timothy got called an apostle. So what you have to be dealing with is the difference between the gift of apostleship and the office of apostle. So you have to make a distinction there. I think there were only 12 gifts of apostleship given uh, through the uh, for the church. Um, just because they were called an apostle doesn't mean they possess the gift. 
The word apostello means to be sent out from. Stello is to send, apo is away from. To be sent out from. And a word search and a contextual study of what that word meant means to be sent out with authority. So one person in authority sends out another person with the authority to carry out what they have given the assignment to carry out. So that's, that's basically what an apostle is. Barnabas was an apostle, not by gift. He was the son of encouragement. His gift seemed to be encouragement. But he was an apostle because he had a function that he was given authority to carry out by other apostles to do that. So he was sent out with authority. Yes. Yeah. Diakonia and uh, deacon is that's one of those interesting words that there is clearly an office. Uh, Acts chapter six, the first six verses are the first deacons that are elected. There's clearly the office of deacon. First Timothy three talks about qualifications for the office of deacon. Okay, to hold that office, but it is the same word that means servant. Okay, it comes from diakonos, which is the masculine form. Diakonia is the feminine form of it, used in a, uh, it's the uh, noun form that's found. So, at times, it just, uh, you know, for the, <laughs> he, let's see, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor, even teachers, for the work of, Diakonia, ministry is the way it's translated for the work of the deacon. It's not just for those who hold the office. I had a conversation with a guy down in Texas today about that th- same thing, and he was talking to it because they have a plurality of elders in their church, and he was trying to explain to them that our job is to equip the saints <laughs> for the work of service, not do all the work ourselves. And so he was trying to get that across. He asked what I was teaching tonight, and I told him, he says, you're not going to believe this. We had this conversation Sunday about (laughs) what our role as an elder was supposed to be. They have elders. They have deacons. We have a combination because elder has a technical meaning with an office of elder. It also has a non-technical meaning, which is what we're all supposed to be. That means mature, old, grown up. So that that's what that uh, connects to. We we get uh, high and mighty based on uh, offices, and there's you know the Lord uh, Lord made it real clear. Uh, the function is a lot. I heard a preacher say, "It's the testimony; it's not the title that makes the difference." That's the best way I've heard it said. Okay, Not the title, it's the testimony. So, anyway, there's only 12 apostles, I believe, that had the gift of apostleship. I do not believe Matthias had it. Matthias was a good man, but he was selected without God's sanction <laughs> prior to the day of Pentecost. Before they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they decided they would fill Judas's place on their own. They said, God, do you want this guy or this guy? And didn't leave him the third option, which was, I don't want either one of those. 
Matthias died as a martyr. It's no slam on his character. He was a devoted follower of Christ all the way to his death. None at all. But I do not believe he had the gift of apostleship. That was given to Paul, Galatians 1.1, called by Jesus Christ as an apostle. And I think that makes it pretty clear he had the 12th, 12th gift. So I believe the, the gift was a temporary gift, gift of apostleship. Some people may function as an apostle. We have our own Matthias in uh, Nigeria that at one time was in charge of multiple churches. That's because there wasn't anybody qualified to be an elder within those churches. He went in and evangelized the village, planted the church, appointed the pastor, and oversaw the pastor while they're getting the pastors trained. So in a sense, he functioned like an apostle, but he did not have the gift of apostleship. And it takes a while to work your way out of that. We're still working him out of it. But he's out of it now, finally. And now this this group of pastors is coming together and they're making decisions how to better evangelize the, the village. So there is that function of church government that can be an apostolic form of government with one person in charge of multiple uh, operations, but there's still not a gift that is, that is found there. Um, there are other temporary gifts. The gift of healing and miracles were also temporary gifts is evidenced by their historical usage in the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> some people say the gift of healing is gone. They make the wrong conclusion that God doesn't heal people anymore. Well, that's just wrong. He can and does heal people and perform miracles, but not through a spiritual gift given to an individual. The Lord still answers prayers. James 5.16, a prayer for healing. The effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But the function of the gift was based on the decision of the one possessing it. If I had the gift of languages, I could turn it off and on. Okay, I could use it spiritually or carnally. I could, I could use those things in that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 compared with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, if a person had the gift of healing, like Jesus did, he said, Arise, take up your pallet and walk, he was healed. That's the perfect picture of the gift of healing. We find other pictures when Peter and, and uh, John were going to the temple one day and said, Silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we'll give you. Rise and take up your pallet and walk. They had the gift of healing, and they could display that, and it didn't make any difference about the faith of the individual. <laughs> Receiving it. Didn't make any difference. It was a gift given to this person to heal uh, someone. Now, when the healing occurred, the, the gifts were used to draw in the early church to draw attention and authenticate the message of the resurrected Christ and also to authenticate the message of the apostles. As they went out, we're from Christ. Well, he did all these miracles. Think about the first generation. Go back. He did all these miracles. What can you do? What can you do? Well, bring one of your sick people here. Okay? They had, the, they had that, I, and I believe, with the gift of apostleship, went the outflow of all these things. Paul could speak in tongues. Okay? Paul could uh, interpret languages. 
He says, I speak in tongues more than any of you guys. Why? Because he was going out evangelizing places. Okay? That's why, that's why he did. The gifts were used in the early church to draw attention. The believer's love for one another, though, is the mature way of drawing attention to the message of Jesus Christ. John 13, verse 34 and 35, if you have this love for one another, all men will know you're my disciples if you have this love for one another. It's looking at the individual acts. It's, it's looking at the individual acts of healing that are there. Each one is viewed as a as almost a different gift, but it's the gifts of healing. And right in that same area is where it puts together. Uh, if you're open right there in that passage, uh, about twelve eight, it says uh, prophecy and distinguishing of spirits. Then it says. Um, um, What's that other one? Knowledge and what? Word. Word of knowledge and what? Wisdom, wisdom and knowledge. Okay. Those are the two gifts that go together. And that and in there is connected with... Uh, Heteros, it's another it's another gift of a different it's uh, it's not heteros then. It's another gift of the same kind. The way the Greek is structured, it says that these two go together. Just like prophecy and distinguishing of spirits goes together, languages and interpretation goes together, wisdom and knowledge goes together. And it's that construction that connects all of those together. So uh, one of the things is about wisdom and knowledge. In fact, the first printing of foundations, we had 12 temporary gifts and eight, or 12 permanent gifts eight temporary gifts and one of which was uh, faith we had the gift of faith as a uh, temporary as a permanent gift and it was the knowledge or wisdom as a permanent gift and then I as it was pointed out to me by another pastor those those words interconnect those things together so if one of them's gone the other one's gone and he was right you know, looking at it, that's what happened. So, subsequent additions made corrections. And we have 10 and 10 in there now as, as to the gifts. So, <clears throat> anyway, the summary of the temporary gifts, point H, the word of wisdom refers to supernatural instructions given for the application of church age truth. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, where it's found, you have... New, you have... Uh, people coming out of the age of Israel with the Mosaic Law, the sacrifices and all that stuff, and that's gone. Okay? You have Galatians, you have James in 46 AD is the first New Testament book. Some the a church gets the book of James and they go, what do we do with this? How do we do it? How do we apply it? What changes do we make in our life? There's a supernatural gift of wisdom to say, this is how you make the applications here. Okay? For this Century, this time frame, no more under the Mosaic Law. Gift of gift of wisdom, temporary gift for that purpose to get the application started right in the early church. 
Gift of faith is a supernaturally great trust in the Lord in the face of seemingly impossible situations. Now, can't there be a kind of a gift of faith now? Don't we have a gift of faith? Are we given a gift of faith? Are you Calvinist or not Calvinist or what? I mean, because some, some of them say, well, if you're one of the unconditionally elect, then God's going to give you a gift of faith so you can be forced to believe. See, so that's how they get around the believe issue is say God gives you the faith. Well, this is a gift of faith, a charisma gift of faith. And it is the uh, described in 1 Corinthians 13, too, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, okay, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. So <clears throat> the Acts 12, when Peter's in prison, I think that's a function of the gift of faith. And, and I think this is so cool because Peter's thrown into prison. And, and here's the church. You can almost see this thing. <laughs> here's the church. And they're praying, Lord, let him out. Let him out. And there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth and all that. Well, an angel comes and lets him out. <laughs> and he goes, comes to the door. And a little slave girl, <laughs> she about dies because she thought it was his ghost. <laughs> that it showed up because these people really didn't have quite the faith that they were praying to have and so somebody in there may have had this faith for this impossible situation and it called the angels in to walk him out the prison door see so that would be an example of a supernatural uh, faith in the face of impossible situations they would have and there may have been somebody still around when they tried to boil John in oil too you know ah, nah they're not gonna I know it's a bad scene here there John's gonna look like a lobster and no it didn't happen so he came through. I want to talk to him when we get up there about that. Because that, you know, John was a son of thunder. I'm not sure that the personality totally changed. You know, you can, you can almost see him up there going, you know, guys, this is still a little cool. <laughs> it's just not, you know, I can't even get a good bath out of this. You know, and they're stoking up the deal like the like the children in the furnace there, but uh, it's just not quite cooking him like they had hoped. Anyway, that's the word of, of um, faith. The word of knowledge was a supernatural utterance of direct information for the church. It's not of a prophetic nature. That's prophecy. Okay? Which was to guide them until the New Testament was completed. A word of knowledge. It's kind of like, what do we do here? Again, their gifts It's saying... There's no completed canon. When there's a completed canon of Scripture, then you pay attention to what God has inspired to be written down. That's what you do. But until then, there's going to be some holes here. Okay? And God knew that, so He provided for it. And He said, yeah, you need a word of knowledge here. Not prophecy, but a how do I do this? Or how does this fit with this? Or how does this uh, piece of theology fit with this piece of theology? And it's an informational thing that is not readily known to the church, but may be a serious question uh, within the church. Healing was the supernatural, immediate, and total physical healing of individuals from various medical conditions. Um, when Jesus heals somebody, rise, take up your pallet and walk, he didn't limp away. There's nothing that said that that happened. He was completely, totally healed without relapse. Now that was a gift of healing. I always wondered about that when some of the faith healers of old that made their 
fame and fortune by healing people and they said just keep the faith up and you'll never get sick again that's not what happened with some some of those folks but the real gift of healing when it, when the person said be healed they were healed and they didn't have that problem anymore Miracles was the supernatural setting aside of the normal natural laws and was viewed in conjunction with healing and the casting out of demons. Okay, that's primarily when you start looking at miracles happening. Miracles is a word uh, dunamis. It comes out of the dynamite words that are words of power. So it indicates power in certain areas. Uh, frequently, you saw it in conjunction with casting out of demons. Prophecy was the supernatural ability to foretell information in the church concerning the near and distant future. Notice there, it is not the gift of preaching. It is not the gift of preaching. Uh, that word is, is prophetes, which is the noun form. We get prophet from that. Prophetuo is the verbal form of that. It comes from a compound word, FAMI, P-H, long E, M-I, FAMI, that means to enlighten. And the P-R-O on the front of it says beforehand. It inherently means by its very structure to enlighten beforehand. So it is not the gift of preaching. Some have tried to take these gifts uh, evolve them into the modern day and they've taken the gift of prophecy and tried to evolve it into the gift of preaching. That's not what the gift was designed to do. Yes? That's how they mutated it. Uh, but the word means to tell something beforehand. Okay? That's, that's what it means inherently. So words can change. Words can adapt. Words can expand in their meaning and in their thinking. But we are not at liberty to do that for the word of God. And the word of God doesn't do that. You know, when the prophets of old went out and they were prophesying, they were telling them what was going to happen. Okay, What did John do when he closed up prophecy? He told people what was going to happen. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing. One, three. The whole thing is a book of prophecy. And it's about events that have not happened that are going to happen. That's what the whole book was about. And then he said, it's over. For the church, it's over. Now, in the millennium, there will be more prophecy. Joel 2 will be fully in play where it was partially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. It was not fully fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So you have a fulfillment, a partial, a near and a distant fulfillment. So Joel chapter 2, Peter quoted it. And your old men will dream dreams, see visions and all that. And you study other passages and that's in the last part of Isaiah between 61 and 66. And I can't tell you exactly where, but it's in that location that it talks about that same thing whenever they will, when they will do that. So <clears throat> prophecy was the ability to foretell information. The gift of distinguishing of spirits was gift used to evaluate false teachers and false prophets. Okay, so when a prophet spoke, 
He had many people that could get him. Another prophet could take care of the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. If there's another prophet in there, that's one thing. What about collusion between prophets? Distinguishing spirits <laughs> was there too. So they'd have to enlist other people, see, to go along with them to, to uh, be able to breed false prophecies uh, out of there. Um, Ephesus, letter of the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. You identified the false, false apostles and the false teachers. And I believe part of the way they did that was through having these gifts still functional. He said, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. Their first love is identified in Ephesians 1.15 as their love for one another. They got so intellectually smart, theologically uh, brilliant in their own mind that they left their love for one another. Uh, we have the uh, uh, tongues and languages. Uh, it was the supernatural ability to speak a human, human language that had not been previously learned. And um, it's so important to learn that. We've, we've kind of dealt before with some of the other things that uh, special prayer language people talk about. <clears throat> well, God gave me a special prayer language. My question is, why? And then I've heard people say, well, so the demons wouldn't listen in on your prayers. Wait a minute. <laughs> Do you know what you're saying? No, but God does. Think about this for just a minute. <laughs> and yet, you know, it's, for some people, it's, well, I've got my special prayer language. Okay. <laughs> and it's kind of like, I've got something you don't. And it's almost, if you're a little bit honoring, you might play a one-upmanship game with them just to see how far it'll go. Well, yeah, I've got one too, but see, mine is uh, is of a secondary, make up something and just see if they bite on it. Like mine is uh, elevated to the secondary plane of the, of the celestial system and see if they can figure that one out and answer back. <clears throat> Because all it is, is is an inflated mind. That's all it is. You know, if I am too hurt and broken to say anything to God, the Holy Spirit intercedes for me. Romans chapter 8. Okay? And if it comes out with a bunch of babbling words that have no meaning whatsoever, then He still knows what is on my heart. But it's not those babbling words that make any difference at all. A word, to be a word, has to have a meaning. In the beginning was the word. A babbling word? No. It was a word that had definition, meaning, and we knew what it was communicating. Was the, and the word was with God and the word was God. That's the way God communicates by means of words that have definition to them. So that particular thing of the, the languages and interpretation of languages and, and Sometimes people are evangelized like that, and they say, "Well, you got to speak in tongues and uh, to prove you've been saved." And, and uh, those are those are Pentecostals. A Pentecostal says you that speaking in tongues is evidence of your salvation. If you've not spoken in tongues, you're not saved. That's a Pentecostal. A Charismatic is one that says the speaking in tongues is the second blessing, and you may or may not speak in tongues. Okay. You, you might not do that. 
but it is a second blessing. They see it as a spiritual gift. They interpret 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Not all speak in tongues, do they? Which Paul asks and answers, no, they don't. Pentecostal has to say the ones that don't are unbelievers. Okay, a charismatic says the ones that don't don't have that gift, and it's not evidence of their salvation. Okay, so there is differences even with the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, and that's that's the difference. That's the key key difference with within them. So <clears throat> this tongues interpretation of tongues uh, was the ability to speak and to translate human languages that had not been previously learned. An apostle was a spiritual gift held by only 12 men who were handpicked by Christ himself. And uh, that seems to be the indication. He picked them. The gifts were given to them by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, and uh, that's the way they got them. Now, the permanent gifts, uh, this is what we've got left. And some say, well, gosh, you got rid of all the fun gifts. But actually, (laughs) what we kept are the ones of abiding value. The ones that have the the long-term objective in mind. The one that involves the the ones that involve the expansion and the maintenance and the sustenance of the church. These are the permanent gifts. Every one of them, even the temporary gifts, had to function based on love. If they didn't, they were worthless or useless. If I give my if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and don't have love, it profits me nothing. If I give my body over to be burned. That's a martyr's death. But I don't have love. It's worthless. It's useless. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 in the middle of that discourse on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 lists all the gifts and how they're supposed to function together as one body within a local church. That's what they're supposed to do. Chapter 14 sets out church decorum. You know, if you're going to do this, this is the way that you, that you need to do it, and this is how it needs to work and how it needs to function. First Corinthians fourteen forty: Let all things be done decently and according to an organized structure. First Corinthians fourteen thirty three: God is not the God a God of confusion. Okay, church is not supposed to be a place of confusion, but chapter thirteen, sandwiched in the middle of it, you can have all these gifts. But you don't have love, you just missed the point. In chapter 14, you take the gifts that you have, you function in love, and you function honorably and according to an organized structure, chapter 14. So there's a a beautiful flow in those chapters that teach us how how to function in a church. But the overarching principles are what's important. You know, the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. That's chapter 12. All the gifts are needed. They're designed to be interrelated to each other and interdependent on one another within the local church. And that's part of the beauty of the body of Christ. The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ till we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what a church is called to do. It says develop a form that will let you most readily do that.
Okay, That's why there's no prescribed forms found for the church. Only described forms found in the scripture. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your amazing grace, for your amazing word, for your amazing plan, and giving us the opportunity to just to look into it a little bit more, a little bit deeper. We are amazed by not just the depth and beauty of your word, but the practicality of it, to show us how we might honor and serve you, to show us how we might function together, and to show us how we might be your witnesses so the whole world knows we belong to you. Father, I pray that would be said of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.